Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Joseph Wang of FedGuide.com and Martin Peltier, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wellington Altus Private Council. Guys, great to have you back uh, back on Forward Guidance. Welcome. You betcha. It's nice to finally catch up and see what happened uh, since the last time we chatted. A lot has happened, but it's so good to see you again, Martin. I think that our interview was the last interview that, that we did before uh, Silicon Valley Bank fell. So yeah, a lot has occurred. Martin, how about you just share with people how you and your, your clients have been navigating the market environment the stock market, you know, has risen precipitously in the U.S. At least, you know, you, a lot of your uh, um, you know, clients are Canadian, and that has been driven mostly by large cap technology stocks with the, the moniker the Magnificent Seven. Not all, but but a, a lot of that has. How have you sort of been processing that and and dialoguing that with your clients? We take a goals based approach, so we're just trying to get most of our clients are are just in their retirement or in, in later stages of working, and so they would be very happy just getting a six to eight percent minimize the variability. And so we weren't heavy in in that segment of the market in 2022. So we didn't experience the same kind of variability and and in our returns. We're actually flat on that year for for the majority of our clients. And then this year, we did increase a little bit, but uh, on the sell off. But you know, we're closer to around 8%. So significantly less than what that uh, that segment of the market is done. Um, so over two years, we're you know we're we're ahead, um, and that's for a balanced type of portfolio. And so if you take a look at the S and P, and you had you know treasuries or or government bonds um, over the last two years, you haven't done very well. It's been really interesting to see, especially since our last conversation, because Silicon Valley Bank appeared to be a catalyst for the Fed, for example, and financial. Uh, liquidity. And so that as as a result, I, I think that was the bottom, not necessarily November, October, November, that was a second, you know, second charge. But I think Silicon Valley Bank was the was the turning point. And I missed it. I mean, <laughs> I didn't, I should have went all in, but I didn't. Um, but we did okay. What can we interpret from the fact that so much of the growth has been in tech stocks, particularly large cap tech stocks? And where do you think it goes from here? Well, I think passive in investing has really changed the, the the overall profile of the markets. People have to benchmark their their portfolios. Active managers do, and if you stray too far from that benchmark, uh, you risk losing clients. And so, what I mean by that is, so in two thousand and twenty-two, if you got if you're down fifteen percent on a balanced portfolio, well, everybody else did that, and then this year, if you're up twelve percent. Well, and and the and and your benchmark's up twelve, then or you have to track that benchmark to the upside, and and so uh, benchmarking is forcing a lot of people to own those segments of the market, and so it's driving a lot of flow into it. And so, for example, if I read that since uh, January two thousand twenty-three with uh, Microsoft's ten billion dollar investment in in Chat GPT that uh, almost 100% of the price return in the S&Ps come from uh, the MAG-7. I mean, that's just astounding. And 42% of that coming from NVIDIA. And so you have to own those, those, those segments, and it's compounding the moves 
higher. And uh, and that we haven't seen that before. This is a little different than than 2000 and the tech bubble in 2000. It, uh, the gains are, are being compounded by that passive aspect. And it works both ways, as we saw last uh, the year before. And Joseph, how are you thinking about this? You predicted at the beginning of this year that stocks would crush bonds. And so far that has occurred. The S&P up around 7% and long-term bonds down 3% since you said that, I believe, on January 4th. I gather you're still bullish on stocks. Tell us about your view. And then also, do you think that this concentration in the Magnificent Seven, really, I mean, the Magnificent, the glorious one, let's call it that, NVIDIA, uh, is is health, healthy for the market, not healthy, a cause for concern, an omen? What, what do you think? Well, first, uh, I'll, I'll agree with Martin. I mean, it looks like it's Mag1, right? NVIDIA going up. So when you when I look at the options skew in Nvidia, you can see that uh, it's basically so. Usually, when you look at options skew, the implied volatility for puts would be higher than for calls because people tend to reach for protection. You know, being a prudent um, asset manager, you would try to hedge your positions, and so there's structural demand for puts. So puts tend to be more expensive relative to calls. But when you look at Nvidia, uh, you can see that basically the, the skew is pretty even, and so the call actually sometimes skewed to the upside. So there you have a lot of people actually buying calls. And that is to say, uh, they want upside protection, fear of missing out of all, all this huge upside. And we've seen before that when a lot of people go and buy a lot of calls, that tends to put a lot of upward pressure on the price, right? So uh, it seems what happens is that people, you know, buy a call and who's short to call? Market maker who, who then has to buy the underlying. So there seems to be some options dynamics there that, that are, putting a lot of upward pressure on these you know, single name tech stocks like NVIDIA. But back to your broader view, I'm very positive on, on the equity market this year. Like I mentioned before, I think of um, one of the biggest determinants of asset prices to be public policy. So on the one hand, you have the Fed, and I'm sure we'll talk about more of that later on, but the Fed is basically engaging on a rate cut cycle. Jay Powell may go out and push out the start of that rate cut cycle from March to somewhere some sometime later, but we're at the high, high highs in the Fed funds rate, and the next move is almost certainly a cut. So that's very positive for risk assets. And on the other hand, you have the fiscal authorities who continue to deficit spend at a very very large rate. So it looks like the deficit be between six seven percent of um, GDP, and we're at a time when the economy is pretty benign. It's expected that this GDP, this deficit spending is going to be elevated uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, the CBO came out with their latest forecast, um, I believe today, about what, or maybe yesterday, about what the um, budget deficit will be going forward. But if you look at the numbers, it's actually much worse than they're saying, because the way that they make their forecasts is they have to assume uh, basically what's currently in law. For example, um, they have to assume that the tax cuts are going to sunset, like the Trump tax cuts are not going to be renewed. Now, is that a realistic assumption? Uh, I don't know. And so, and of course, they make assumptions on interest rates. Uh, maybe interest rates end up higher than we expect. So uh, from my perspective, so uh, their estimate of the deficit, which is already going to be very high going forward, is just going to be worse than than what they forecast. So as long as that continues, I think that's very positive for risk assets. Now, that being said, it does seem pretty crazy what we're seeing in the markets, right? Stock market only goes up. And so I'm very cautious right now. I think uh, it would be totally normal in the course of a bull market for there to be a pullback of, um, you know, some degree. 
Well, one question I have for you, Joseph, is that um, on the deficit, I've always wondered how much of it is going towards military spending um, in Ukraine, supporting Israel, Middle East stability, and how much of, of that deficit is going directly to supporting the U.S. economy uh, when you're netting that out? Have you done any work on that? I think that that's a really good question, right? We spend all this money and it goes everywhere. And some of it just ends up in Ukraine. But I suspect that even money that's spent in Ukraine, you know, that's U.S. defense contractors and so forth, right? And maybe they take down money and maybe they you know, keep it in, in London or somewhere else. I, I don't know. But it, it's, it's I, I don't know. Could be that all that money flows outside and has a bigger impact on what's happening in, in some certain segments in other economies. But overall, I think when you look at the big picture, uh, you have things like Medicare, Social Security. These things go straight uh, to the U.S. economy. You got movements towards things like, you know, forgiving student loans. And you have our interest rate payments, which, uh, again, part of that goes abroad, but the bulk of it stays here as well. So um, I, I, I sense that you're right. We're just kind of spraying money everywhere. Some of it just leaks out of the U.S. economy. But I think the bulk still directly impacts the U.S., because um, I'm sorry, Jack, just to jump in is because this is really interesting. Um, I saw I posted our chart on Twitter. It shows that the percentage change in real net worth by age group, um, surprisingly, um, it's under 40. It's massive change. The change in wealth has been most dramatic for younger adults, uh, up to 80 uh, percent compared to 20 percent for, for those over 55. And the lowest is is the Gen Xers like, like myself, <laughs> maybe because we didn't buy NVIDIA. <laughs> um, but that, that, that's really interesting. So the younger population is, is benefiting. Is that from the stimulus, from the loans, those sorts of things? That's really uh, an eye-popping number. And to your point, Martin, so all this official data, when they look at wealth by generation, that they don't include crypto because that's just not in the mm -hmm. official statistics. Uh, but as we all know, uh, crypto tends to be an asset owned by younger people. And it's an asset that has gone up a lot in, uh, in price. And so on the market cap, you know, it's, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's just not in the statistics. So official statistics would understate, um, I guess, the wealth of younger generations. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you can lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. Joseph, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about New York Community Bank. Uh, the shares, NY, ticker NYCB, have you know, sold off tremendously when last week they reported an earnings that was quite weak. They cut their dividend and the shares have continued to fall out and the, the, there's been a lot of concern there. How concerned do you think are you about that bank and then how you know, systemic or not do you think it will be? And as you also know, we're recording this on February 8th. This likely will air on Monday. So, you know, people, you, you guys don't say something like there's a 0% chance that anything's going to go wrong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Never say zero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think New York Community Banks, it looks like they're, they, so again, they had their earnings call. Afterwards, their stock basically got cut in half. So it seemed like they're having some 
problems in their portfolio, some credit problems. So um, they have a big holdings in multifamily rental apartments in New York City. So loans against that and also uh, loans against offices. Now, as we all know, offices are not doing well. Work from home has really devastated that sector. And half of their portfolio of offices is Manhattan offices. So that, that part is, is not going to do well. But the, the bigger part of their holdings seems to be multifamily rentals. And from what I understand, there is, there's been a law change on this uh, recently, such that it's more difficult for landlords to raise the price of rent if they own these uh, rent-controlled multifamily apartments. And so the value of the, their collateral uh, is, uh, so they make loans against this collateral, is not clear. And maybe, um, maybe the collateral is worth a lot less than it was before. And so they may have some potential credit losses there. So that's really hurting their asset values. Now, the second thing is that because they got bigger uh, by taking on some of Signature, Signature Bank's um, deposits, they breached the $100 billion threshold in their balance sheet. And in the U.S., how you're regulated in part determines on, on how big you are. And once you breach the $100 billion asset threshold, you come under tighter regulations and you need to raise more capital. So for a bank, capital is a liability. It's basically cash that's used to be the cushion against losses. So where do they get the money to, to have capital? They seem to be getting it by cutting dividends. So they're taking money that they earned instead of giving it to their shareholders. They're, they're keeping it as their capital to meet these new regulations. And so when you have cut dividends and when you have uh, an asset portfolio that's maybe not doing very well, people get scared. And so their stock price is being cut down dramatically. Now, I don't think this is systemic. And also, I don't think the Fed thinks it's systemic as well. So you had uh, a while back, you had Governor Waller ask about this commercial real estate exposure by small banks. And he said that, you know, he's not worried about it at all because they've had a year to go and think about it. And today you had Fed President Barkin basically say something similar. He's not worried about it. Uh, these guys have had a lot of time to, to prepare for it. And I think that's probably the right take. That being said, we have over 4,000 banks in the U.S. Some of them will be overexposed to segments of the commercial real estate market that are not doing well. So, yeah, they're, they're probably going to be hurting. But, you know, we have thousands of banks, thousands of businesses. Some of them are not going to do well. That's just true in any industry. Right, one thing that really stands out to me, Joseph, is how in the stock market, the shares of regional bank stocks that aren't New York Community Bank Maybe they're down a little bit, but there's no real fear of contagion as there was uh, you know, on that Friday when SVB failed or the Monday afterwards where there were large regional banks that were went down 70% intraday, indicating you know, the, uh, the market was pricing in a severe risk of, of a failure and bank runs. Interestingly, the most recent deposit data you know, as of this morning showed uh, that as of earlier this week, deposits from December 31st to February 6th. Fifth actually increased a billion or two, but you know, then for, for people who are skeptical of the stock, it's never enough. They're like, well, we need more recent data. We need more recent data. Martin, as a you know observer across the the, the border, uh, how have you been observing this, if if at all, uh, or your, your thoughts on the Canadian banking sector, which you know, I mean, the, the, those stocks seem to be hanging in there. So there's nine hundred billion dollars of mortgages coming due in the next two years here in Canada. That's significant. And they're being renewed at, at much higher rates. And, and so the banks are, 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 we don't have regional banks per se other than credit unions. And so it's, it's a much different structure. 
um, and, and, and a lot better control around lending in some cases. Now, um, from a risk standpoint, reward standpoint, uh, I like the US, big US banks compared to the Canadian banks. And so we've, uh, we, we don't own a lot of direct Canadian bank exposure, but we do have some, and it's in those that don't have as much of a retail exposure um, to those terms coming due, um, just because of, of the risks uh, that, that come around that. Now, from the asset protection that these banks have um, in Canada, I mean, we had one and a half. I mean, there's something really interesting happening here. There's a huge experiment happening. Uh, we've had one and a half million people come into the country last year. I mean, that's like our population is 40 million. I mean, that's that's un, unheard of in any other uh, OPEC, I'm sure OPEC, uh, OECD nation. And and so um, there's a huge amount of of immigration and there's only 250,000 housing builds, housing starts. So there's huge demand on, on housing and that's keeping, keep despite the higher uh, interest rates, that's keeping prices high. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of that are about people moving from Eastern Canada and Toronto and Ontario into Alberta. Alberta's booming now, um, not necessarily because of higher oil prices, but also people coming in because the lower cost of living and housing prices are, are, are half to, you know, a third less than where they are in, in Toronto. And so there's that dynamic playing out. So there's a huge risk in, in the banking, despite these resets coming due because they're protected by the strong asset values. But it, looking in the U S I, I like the U.S. economy better than the Canadian economy and, and, and the health. Because if you look at our GDP per capita, it's actually negative. And, uh, and so it's, it's dilutive in regards to our economic growth. So despite this huge immigration, we're not getting the economic benefits from it. And so from an exposure to the economic aspect, um, I like the big U.S. banks better than the Canadian banks. And to Martin's point, if you look at a big U.S. bank like J.P. Morgan, they're basically at all-time highs. So it's been a really good trade. Yeah, um, the big U.S. banks have done well. Yeah. One of the things when I look at Canada is, as you mentioned, Martin, a lot of the mortgages there tend to be sh- shorter in tenure. So you have to renew, let's say, every five years. So for yeah. a country like Canada, monetary policy really does have lags. Whereas in the U.S., I mean, maybe I don't know. We'll see. But that, that seems to be coming along right now. What are the commentary about that and how, how are people facing this? I mean, I imagine for, for some of them who took out a mortgage, say, around the pandemic, it's going to be a big jump in their interest rate payments. Bank of Canada is in a real it's in a rock and a hard place. They've got a tough problem here because they have asset inflation and these housing prices that are really expensive. Um, you know, Vancouver and Toronto are as expensive, if not more than like New York and, and, and the incomes are not nearly the same. And, and so um, the affordability is, is becoming a, a major issue. So if you cut rates in an environment where there's strong demand for housing, that, that may make the problem worse. But at the same time, you have those who are already bought in, right? And their payments are going up. And so it's like, what do you do? And, and so, um, and, and, and so they, they have to balance that against the currency impact and what the Fed does. And, and fortunately, the, the saving grace and, and people in parts of Canada will hate to admit it, but 
saving grace's oil <laughs> for our <laughs> for our currency if we didn't have oil you'd have some currency pressures and and it would put uh, even more pressure on the bank of canada and so here we are oil saving the day and and creating some flexibility for the bank of canada so we're it, it's i don't i don't envy the the governor i don't envy tiff i mean it's he's got a tough job and i'd add that if you're really having you know 1.5 million a year you know that's that's a source of inflation that monetary policy just can't deal with right all these people they, they have to, they have to live somewhere uh, they have to eat and so forth i mean housing inflation alone yeah, that's it's going to go to the moon no matter where rates are just because all these people they have to live somewhere and and household debt is so high compared to the us household debt is is again the highest in the oecd in canada we 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 have an affinity for debt so you would have thought that you know that all of these rate hikes would have been catastrophic to housing and it wasn't it really wasn't and i can understand the us because you have 30 year term mortgages and the amount that were shorter term since like the the exposure from that standpoint to higher rates but in canada like you mentioned most people have five year terms or less variable and so they've seen a big in- increase in their in their payments and housing prices haven't really now they're starting to come back again in toronto and in, in calgary we're, we're just in in rocket ship mode um and so uh, that just tells you that uh, that immigration really exasperated the problem the inflationary problem and that's going to make it very difficult for the bank of canada really really difficult and i think people are starting to get upset like uh people are are, are seeing you know i'm not better off and and i'm a proponent of immigration absolutely it's it's immigration we need more people in this in in canada for sure because we're geographically dispersed low population we have to only way we can get services is through oligopolies so we have oligopolies in our in our telecom oligopolies in our banking um and so that's because nobody wants to come up here we're such a small market i mean hey look microsoft could buy canada Nvidia could buy Canada. I mean, Microsoft is larger than all of the Canadian companies combined. So, really? wow. Yeah, that think about that. One company is as big as all of the companies in Canada. Yeah, it, it it is remarkable that statistic. And yes, those oil companies cannot grow their revenues, and the quality of the earnings are not as high. But it is remarkable. I mean, Canada is a huge energy supplier to the globe, and the idea that. The, the entire energy compl- complex, publicly traded complex, and all of the other Canadian companies are worth less than one company. Yeah. It is pretty remarkable. I mean, what do you do? You think that's a bubblicious? I'll, I'll talk about Microsoft, but Nvidia is worth more than all the energy companies in the U.S. Right. So let, let's just talk. And I've used this example recently, and I think it's a perfect one. And and it's it highlights that um, difference between good companies and good stocks. Okay. There's no doubt about it. Microsoft is an awesome company. It's like it's one of the best companies in the world, and it's one that you want to want to own. But you have to be careful in the timing when you want to own it. So, for example, in 1999, if you bought Microsoft, okay, it was at 50 times free cash flow. Okay, 1999. Now, from 1999 to 2012, it grew it free is grew it grew its free cash flow by 240 percent outstanding financial results, really good numbers, a great company it executed on its plan. It delivered on its growth. What do you think a share price did? Guess, Flat. any guess? Flat. Lost 50%. Oh, wow. 
So it delivered everything it was going to do, but it lost 50%. The reason being is it's free cash flow multiple shrunk from 50 to, to eight times, eight times. Now, if you bought it in 2012 to now, it grew its free cash flow by 135%, like half of what it did the previous period of time. Okay. But you made 12 times your money because it went from eight times back to 50 times. So going back to the old Warren Buffett intrinsic value, the value on judgment day, the value of when you sell, okay, is has a huge impact on your returns. So it's not just the the cash flow stream that you're getting and the growth of that cash flow stream. It's what the value is at judgment day. And so he calls that your safety margin. So what are you paying now? If you had to blow it down with the assets and if you like you look at that and he, and and so um if you if you look at 50 times free cash flow or 12 times sales, is it going to be worth that in 10 years? And so I did a little chat GPT experiment and I said, name one company that's been able to maintain its free cash flow multiple of over 30 times, not 50, 30 times over 10 years, not one. I said, name one company over 10 times sales that's been able to maintain that multiple, not one. Okay. Now, uh, price earnings is a little different because you have Amazon that, that's done some, some different things there. But generally speaking, um, not one company's done it. So why is it going to be different this time? What's going to be different? And so don't forget back in 1999, you know, the internet economy. And the internet was as impactful, if not more than AI. Like the internet was like, think about that. That was like, that's, that is game, as game-changing technology as it gets. And so you had companies like Cisco who were benefiting from that. And Sun Microsystems, right? Outstanding companies. And Cisco is trading at a, was trading a similar multiple as, as Nvidia is, and and so it, it lost its value and it took twenty years to get back, but it delivered huge uh, operational results. So it's not like Nvidia is not going to be able to execute, right? It's just a matter of do you want to pay that multiple and, and what's it going to be worth at, at that point in time? And so that's the thinking that I'm looking at. It. I don't disagree with the narrative of all these technologies and the impact it's going to have. But how much is that in the valuations and uh, how is that going to change over time? Yeah, I, I guess the reason that companies, that's a really remarkable statistic about no companies maintain their 30 price, price to free cash flow multiple. I wonder if some of that they grow into it. You have to backfill that in. So let's just look at, let's look at NVIDIA, for example. It spent $5 billion over the last five years, okay? And it added $1.6 trillion in value to the company. Now, over the next uh, so 19 times increase so in its, in its price. So it's going to backfill in that value, okay? So it's going to, so let, let's just say that none of that's, it's, it's going to backfill that in. So it's going to spend $10 billion over the next five years, okay? So that $10 billion is going to generate $1.6 trillion in value. And so I like to ask, and I did this with oil companies back when they were booming, when they were spinning out at four times net asset value. Uh-huh. I'd say, okay, show me your capital program and how are you going to add that much value by drilling a well? And then you're going to add that much value. Creation. So how, how are you going to do that? And so like, I want to know how NVIDIA, by spending $10 billion, is going to create $1.6 trillion in value as a fill-in-net air pocket, right? How are they going to do it? And I don't have an answer. I, 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 and I haven't found anybody to, to give me that, to give me that answer. Like going back to the previous multiples, there's one company that came really close and I'm curious to see if either of you guys could guess it one company. And so you got to get out of, 
out of 500, you got to nail one. And one company has just been outstanding. It came close to maintaining those multiples. Take a guess. FICO, Fair Isaac? No. No idea. Do you drink uh, energy drinks? Mo Monster. Yeah. Best performing stock of all time. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So there you go. I got one, maybe one. And, uh, and it's, the best it's, it's rocket fuel for our kids. Hey, Martin, a lot of people are thinking about this and like drawing parallels to the dot-com era. Is, is that a sense that you get? Well, the difference being is these companies have cash, right? So um, we've allowed companies to create oligarchy. I mean, to be honest, the U.S. is, is allowed. And I, and I think monetary policies is a primary driver of this. You had free capital for 10 years. And so these companies were able to um, do the lost lead model, give away their products and services below their cost and secure a huge ecosystem. And now they've secured it. Now they're putting up moats to protect it. And so now you've got oligopolies. And so that could actually drive inflation because, hey, with the exception of like Tesla isn't at that point yet. They're early and, and they may have missed the whole, uh, the whole boat with the Fed. They may have been too late to getting that access to that cheap capital. Um, whereas others were earlier to that game. And so they may pass along higher costs and higher products. You're seeing it with Apple with their Vision Pro and their new phones coming up. They're getting higher and higher in price. So that deflationary impact from technology, with the exception, I'm not sure how AI is going to play out with that, um, that deflationary pressures may not be the same. So that's a little bit different from, from 2000. Um, but the valuations in certain segments among the, the lar these large, well-established companies um, are not that different. I mean, Microsoft had 50 times free cash flow. Um, I don't even want to talk about NVIDIA. And, uh, <laughs> you know, even Apple at seven times sales. But Martin, I think the forward price to earnings based on guidance and like NVIDIA has tripled their earnings over the past year. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think their, their forward price to earnings ratio is, 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 I think, 33. Not cheap by any means. No, but, but like, still I think Chipotle, you know, Chipotle is an expensive stock. Maybe it's too expensive. Yeah. I don't know. But Chipotle's forward price earnings ratio is 50. Fair Isaac, which I mentioned, there is 70. So it's it's assuming all of these very positive things based on recent trends. It's not ridiculously expensive. And I'd also say, Martin, would you agree that so many companies of the dot-com era were flat out bubbles or not even legitimate companies with zero revenue. That is something I struggle to see in 2021 and 2022. So many companies went public that were junk, never even made a penny in revenue and went to zero this time around. Maybe, you know, uh, uh, animal spirits have gotten ahead of themselves, but they're about legitimate companies that have real earnings that are growing. I yeah. haven't seen that many fake AI companies, you know, go to it, many billion dollars. It's taken a different shape. It's not companies. It's crypto, NFTs, um, meme stocks. They exist, right? They're there. They're happening. They're just not companies as IPOs. They're in a different form. So, I mean, these things still exist. Look at these, look at these cryptos. Look at, look at the NFT market. Look at, like, I mean, look at ARC. They've lost $14 billion, the ARC fund. And look at what they've invested in. Just pull up those companies. Look at SPACs. Right, but Marvin, I'm saying those. I'm not. I'm not talking about crypto. I'm talking about publicly traded securities and, and stocks. I'm saying that those haven't zoomed up in price as much as Nvidia, whereas in 2021 they did. No, but I, I'm saying is that 
it's just that it's that that risk is i mean you could consider those kind of like companies like the dot-com companies right it's just and it, and i i think it's the mentality of like the sports betting um that that's that changed the the structural shift with covid people coming in and they they it robin hood and day trading and everything else um and then sports betting and so that risk is is not in those companies those dot-com companies it's in that other other segments of the market but you still had some microsystems at 10 times sales right and uh you still had cisco you still had all of these large companies dominating that's the similarity not the the other components of the nasdaq and so uh, that that makes it makes it very very difficult to see how far we go from here but we don't have our nortel our nortel networks moment right or blackberry or i mean we should go on about canada and our tech we have one lap so well we're not gonna wish some bad luck there no which one is it shopify oh yeah well that's a good good one yeah no that's and that's half of our tech index so um <laughs> we have eight percent of our s and of our tsx and and half of that is in one company so um let's i i for the sake of that i hope that keeps going yeah that's uh really interesting well moving away from stocks towards the world of fixed income and treasuries joseph you had a recent piece which uh it's about the levering up of the basis trade, which is basically going long bonds and short futures against those bonds or, or vice versa. And, you know, very complex over my head. Can you uh, explain your findings in this most recent piece on, on fedguy.com? We have, we're issuing a lot of treasuries, right? So, I mean, the primary issuance is, it looks like it's going to be, you know, depends on the deficit, deficit forecast to be about 1.6 trillion this year. So we're issuing a lot of treasuries going forward. And there's been a lot of discussion as to who's going to buy all this debt. Now, the marginal buyer of all this treasury issuance for the past you know, several months has been the uh, what's called the cash futures basis trade, Jack. And like you correctly described, it's when a hedge fund basically buys a cash treasury and then sells a future. So it says it sells a treasury future. What they're trying to do is they're trying to benefit, they're trying to profit from uh, price differences between the futures market and the cash market. So what they're seeing right now is that the futures market, the treasury futures are too expensive relative to cash. So they're selling futures and they're buying cash. Now, then the question becomes, so why are the treasury futures so expensive relative to cash? The reason that they're expensive, and you can see many charts uh, on the internet on this, is because the asset managers, now these guys, I would say, your mutual funds, your pension funds, your separately managed accounts, those guys are tremendously, tremendously long treasury futures. Those guys are the guys who ultimately bear the risk. Because if you're a hedge fund doing the cash futures basis trade, uh, you, you don't have any directional risk. On the one hand, you're short treasury futures. On the other hand, you're long cash treasuries. So you don't have exposure uh, to, to treasury prices. All that risk is being held in the asset management community. These guys are basically the ultimate uh, holders of all this treasury duration risk that's being issued. So in order to figure out just... Is there a limit to this trade? And um, what happens, what would happen for this trade to reverse? After all, I think of the market as just supply and demand. So being able to understand uh, what drives demand for treasuries is really important. So there's this really interesting research uh, presented to the U.S. Treasury about this. And what they're finding is that the reason that these asset managers are so tremendously long treasuries is because they're levering up to try to beat their benchmark. 
So if you are an active fixed income manager, um, you basically try you uh, manage to the Bloomberg Ag Index. That's an index for fixed income. And in the Bloomberg Ag, uh, it's a lot of it is treasury securities. Uh, obviously, treasuries are the largest um, segment of the fixed income universe in dollars. What these guys are doing is that they are trying to beat the Ag Index by selling some of their, so using some, so let's say right now they have a hundred dollars, right? And let's say uh, that $20 of that is devoted to treasuries because they have to at least, you know, have matched their ag index. So what they're doing is let's say take that $20 in treasuries, sell 10 of that and load up on credit. So uh, let's say high yield debt. And because that debt offers a bigger yield than treasuries. And so once they do that, they have a higher yield, but of course, they're still benchmarked to the ag index, and the biggest driver of the ag index's return is interest rate risk. And so they want to make sure that their portfolio is, again, has the same duration as the ag index. So what do they do? They can add back that duration exposure by levering up and buying treasury futures. So at the end of the day, their exposure, the overall exposure is larger, and some of that is in higher yielding um, let's say credit instruments, spread products, and that's allowing them to beat their benchmark. And this trade apparently is very popular in the primary source of the demand for treasury futures, which of course is what creates the basis trade. And so it seems like this is something that's going to be able to continue until they get kind of some kind of shock to their credit investments, and then maybe they'll retrench. Long only or you know, the, the buy side. Long only, want, yes. Yeah, wants to be long these treasuries and they do so with uh leverage to get exposure to duration exposure to interest rates hedge funds then you know kind of harvest the fact that treasuries futures trade at a premium over cash bonds by being long the cash bonds and short the futures and unlike like you know being long a six year and short a seven year where you find some curve in the trade you know these things do converge over time because future future contracts have an expiration date so that makes it kind of a you know a very safe trade but safe trades can become dangerous trades because you use a lot of leverage on them. Interestingly, you know, in you know, one of your earlier paragraphs, you said that the uh, growth and the you basically leverage for the uh, cash futures basis trade is linked to the performance of credit, where spread widening could also trigger treasury selling. That is really interesting because normally we think credit spreads widen something. People are worried about the economy people go into treasury. This time you said that credit and duration could sell off at the same time. Yeah, so that's actually what happened in, in March 2020. So go back to my example. If you are an active portfolio manager, $100, and then you sold some of your treasuries and replaced that with, uh, let's say, high yield debt to, to goose your yield. Now, if there is some kind of, um, let's say, shock to the market and people are asking for their money back, well, the problem is you can actually sell your high yield debt. That market is just not that liquid. So at the end of the day, uh, you're going to have to sell your treasuries. If there is some kind of stress to the market, you would expect um, there to be stress in let's say, equities and uh, credit. So, you know, stuff that has risk. But if everyone has to sell their treasuries just to raise liquidity to meet redemptions, then you could also have treasuries sell off as well. And that's exactly what happened in March 2020. It's, it's basically um, linking the treasury market and the high yield market through these uh, portfolio managers who, who are levering up. Very interesting. Martin, what, what do you think of this piece and the implications to it to the broader uh, financial system? Well, I think there's a lot of embedded risk on the fixed income side that investors may not be, may not realize. 
right? And so um, all kinds of different things that can that could potentially derail it for investors. And I saw that in March of 2020 and some of these so-called um, uh, duration neutral type of, of, of funds got just completely destroyed. And, and, and on the other side of their short position, and because corporate high yields just mean that the whole market just went no bid and it was terrible. And so, I mean, it can play out many different ways, not necessarily just the economy, but it can also play out with how the Fed uh, responds um, with interest rates. And so um, we are, are and our, what we've done is um, we, we use long, long dated bonds. It's just strictly as a, as a, a risk instrument. And, and so um, we're out of the high yield. We're not in the high yield space um, for a number of different reasons. Um, for, that you've just described, but um, we are in the long, we started added some duration in our exposure, but we did that through a structured product. And so what, what I mean by that is we, we, we don't think the, the, they are expensive, but we do, we're not, we don't really want that yield. And, but we want the, if something shit hits a fan in two years with the economy, something happens. Um, I want to own that asset class. And so we did it so we get uh, 1.2 times the upside of, of long dated treasuries with an embedded 30% downside protection in case, you know, we get it wrong. So it's a zero cost hedge uh, for us. And we're giving away a yield that we don't, we're not too enthralled about. So um, there is that opportunity cost. So that's how we're playing it. But if you're a traditional 60, 40 type of investor and you're having an active manager that's trying to beat the Bloomberg, uh, the, that egg index that Joseph, you were mentioning, uh, you know, is it really worth the risk to get that spread above that index? Really? Is it, is it worth it? Like how much you, like what, what, what are your take home and, and what go wrong for that risk? I don't know. I, I always look at things like, what am I, what am I getting for my return? Okay. And then how much risk exposure do I have? Right. So if it's a couple and, and so, you know, with the Fed keeping rates low for so long, um, yeah, people, I don't remember people were shorting vol and and, you know, and writing puts. And, and so you're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller to get a basis trade. And then the steamroller comes. <laughs> All of those, you get five years of returns wiped out in, in a week. Right. And so you have that tail risk exposure that it's just. Like, why do you want to have that in your portfolio? You know, that's such a good point. And so when you're doing the, the uh, cash futures basis trade, uh, it looks like if you do 20 times leverage, you can get about 10% return over cash. Uh, but if you look at a graph of, of those earnings uh, of someone, of a fund that does that, you know, over time, you go to a place like 2020 when you basically wipe out all your, your capital and then you have to start over. So it, it is picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Sometimes you lose everything. Uh, but Martin, about managing money from, from a Canadian perspective, when, you, when a Canadian fund is, is looking at fixed income, are they also looking at treasuries or do, do you, uh, is it a focus on uh, Canadian guppies or is it more global? I like U.S. treasuries. I, lo- I love liquidity, right? I, I go to bed with liquidity at night. It keeps me nice and warm and I can wake up and I, I just love it. And, and I love the transparency. And Canada is such a small market, and it's not very transparent. And so, 
Um, we have some Canadian corporate bonds, you know, yielding five and a, five and a half percent. You know, that, that's okay. Um, but we're underweight bonds, period. Like we've been underweight in our 60-40. I call it the 50-40-10, you know, uh, we're 50% long equities, 40% structured and derivative products, and 10% cash slash short-term bonds. U.S. floating rates have been fantastic. Now we're taking that to like, you know, uh, 50, 30, 20, adding in some duration for, for risk management. So, um, and that's and that where we're adding that in is in the U.S. market, um, not, not the Canadian market. And so, um, again, that it's just strictly preference and liquidity. And I, and I like... I like U.S. dollars um, as a Canadian, um, especially with some of the policies, economic policies. I just mentioned GDP per capita. If you look at our productivity, this is fine. I don't want to digress, but a productivity uh, on a G- per, uh, GDP basis, like of, of our provinces, if you rank them against the 52 states, um, Alberta is ranked 14th, so it's not bad. Tied with Texas, go figure. Um, and uh, and but all the rest are at the bottom like uh, Louisiana and Arkansas and, and like all of them are near the bottom. So our productivity is, we can't compete with the U S at a, 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 uh, anything more than 75 cents. We need a discounted dollar. And if we didn't have oil, it'd be more like 65 cents. Um, so um, I like owning uh, the U S is doing so good. Like the economy's doing so well. Um, like, I don't know why Biden's pulling so low in, in, in the polls. I mean, the economy's ripping, doing well. You've got inflation coming down. You've got the markets at their highs. You know, I want to own that. I mean, I want to be there. Um, Canada's, the, the economic outlook is nowhere close to what's happening south of the border. I have seen a chart of uh, Can- Canadian GDP per capita, and it's shocking. It's basically been stagnant for a really, really long time. I mean, because of immigration, the overall GDP grows, but GDP per capita, people just uh, are not better off. So no, it's it's really surprising. So for, and and you mentioned inflation. Um, I I was a speaker at the Calgary CFA, uh, as you mentioned, you were there uh, a couple of years ago. As yeah, you know. it was a great event. Um, I was one of the uh, panelists this year, and um, a, a fellow a panelist told me about his wife from Argentina. And in Argentina, they park their money in cars because their dollar keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But if they buy a car, it's an inflation hedge. So everybody's buying new cars. So as a Canadian, um, instead of buying cars, um, although I like cars, but uh, instead of buying cars, I, I like U.S. dollars. And it sound, I remember our first interview, you just talked about the structured products. Uh, has that worked out well? And have you increased your exposure to those structured products? And can you also just sh- sh- explain again the payoff structure? So if you're looking at you're buying a bond and uh, you're trying to get that spread trade and, and, and if the, you have 20 times leverage and so you've got that, that exposure to the underlying and if something goes wrong, you've got that, that exposure there. So um, where a structured product comes in, you can pick whatever index you want. Uh, you could do US, you could do an ETF, you could do US treasuries, you could do anything that you want. And, and then you could do a derivative overlay on it. And it's done within a contractual obligation with a counterparty. Now, counterparty risk is important, as you know, with Lehman Brothers and, 
and Society General. So I mean, we have Canadian banks, Royal Bank and, and National Bank and Bank of Montreal. These banks aren't going anywhere um, anytime soon. And uh, so that's a counterparty. So um, we can do, we can take a look at it and say, okay, Russell 2000, we did well. It, that's still 20% below the S&P, uh, it's, 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 it's uh, highs, uh, pre-COVID highs. And, but we made some money on it. We did really well. So we sold our Russell 2000 exposure and did a structured note on the Russell 2000. So we locked in a nice gain, de-risked it. And, uh, and, and so we de-risked it by, by doing a note on, on that index. And if the index, as long as it stays above minus 30%, okay, we get paid a 10.6% coupon annualized out monthly. And so we've turned it into a fixed income uh, like replication and 10.6% our clients are, I mean, although it's a fixed income and we treat it as a fixed income component in our portfolio, um, you know, 30% downside in the Russell 2000 with 10.6% coupon paid up monthly. That's great. Especially since we locked in a 40% gain on our Russell 2000 for our clients, de-risked it. Now we're getting a coupon payment on it. That's how a structured note works. So it's not just uh, an index by it, uh, a note by itself. We do it in context of, uh, of the market. And we've done that on, on a whole bunch. We could do ones that will pay a premium at the end of the year. Um, we're not trying to beat, that's the nice thing. We're not trying to beat the Russell 2000. We're trying to get six to 8%. We're getting 10.6 and, uh, that meets our targets. We're okay. So we can watch all the stuff that's going up and down. Um, we'll talk about energy. Energy is only 8% of our portfolio and that's extremely volatile. Mm-hmm. And it's not that 8% is creating so much pain and anxiety uh, for such a small percentage of the overall portfolio, um, you know, whereas at Russell 2000, I'm getting my 10.6, right? And I'm sleeping at night, hugged next to my liquidity trade on uh, on bonds. And so is that Russell 2000 structured note, would that be part of your, in your 50, 40, 10? Would that be part yeah. of your 50% equity or your 40% no. bonds? We move it to the to the bond side of things. So we want to be long bond, we want to be long equity. So you got to be, we call that your beta, your beta trade. Right. And there's that portable alpha that some people will term. Um, and, but, you know, we'll, we'll look at, we want to have that long exposure at all times because we want to track that upside, a portion of that upside. I'm recognizing we'll track a portion of that downside. Um, but, but if we can narrow that distribute, that distribution curve to provide more predictability and getting that six to 8%, um, our, our clients are happy. And so we always want to have that pure long exposure. We'll always be running 40 to 50% long and uh, at, at, at all times. And so what percentage of your of the 40% bond part is structured notes on equity instruments or equity indices versus structured note on the, on the 10 year or treasury of the 40, um, 20% would be on the fixed income aside and 80% would be in, on a, on an index. Now, or on stocks in general, and they'll, we'll, we'll look at uh, all blue chip. So uh, we'll do one on the S&P, for example. We're getting called away. We've done really well on those. Um, we'll do one on uh, Canadian banks. We'll do one on utility companies. U.S. utilities have been beaten up, and, uh, and Canadian utilities companies have been beaten up. And so as a risk-free component, we'll do like a deep 30 40% downside barrier and we'll get coupons of you know 12, 13%. And so we'll count that as a high yield bond exposure per se. Mm. Um, I'd much rather own that as a high yield instrument than buy a, a junk bond. That is interesting. So 
that I, I would characterize that as a short volatility trade, maybe a short tail risk uh, trade. And in general, over the long term, short volatility trades have a positive expected return, absolute return, and the long volatility trades generally have a negative return. And that, I mean, I, I just know for a fact, like if you look at short VIX future strategies, like that has performed extremely well uh, over the past um, uh, two years. How do you sort of uh, think about that trade where, you know, you, I mean, you are in front of that steamroller, right? You, maybe you're picking up nickels, uh, 10%, you know, 12% coupon, they sound good. But, you know, that w- what about the, if, it, if it, there's a crash and it goes below 30%? You gotta manage that tail risk, right? You're right, 100%. So that's why you, uh, uh, being an active portfolio manager, you can add value. So you run a, a portfolio of these. You stay in the maturity dates. Um, you can add buffers on them. So what I mean by that is not a, it's not a. If you hit 31, you lose 31. If you hit 29, you get all your money back. You buffer the downside barrier, right? Uh, your term structure, five, seven years. Um, and you stay at those maturity dates. Um, you can sell them uh, before their maturity dates. So you're not reliant on that one day risk, right? And so you have to manage that tail risk. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and then you can, these things will, will trade, I mean, typically not well above their issue price. They'll trade up added below it. And so your clients have to recognize that um, there, there is uh some downside not being, I mean, it's it being reflected in that, in that valuation, but you've got that, that barrier. And so um, you're right. Absolutely. It's not just, it's, it's not a guaranteed income. It's not, it's something that you really need a professional going in and overseeing it because um, the, the, the bad side about these structured products is um, they have in Canada anyway, and I probably didn't know this, but um, they have a, one of the few areas that you can get a sales commission on them. And uh, advisors up here get anywhere from three to four percent one times sales commission. So, I mean, I'll, I'll do five million dollar trades uh, on a regular basis. I mean, I got three percent sales commission on that. I mean, that's it's crazy. And so it's it's almost like crack cocaine. You know, they get a sniff of this and it's like, wow, this is fantastic. So they sell it. They pick up the phone and tell somebody, don't worry, the market's never fallen thirty percent over five years. You know, you're going to get a, a 15% coupon payment, and but they're not understanding how the index works, the dividend impact on that index, because the, the dividends are harvested by the bank underwriting them. They're not understanding the tail risk. Um, and so um, it's a $40 billion a year market in Canada. So it's pretty big. Yeah, it's a huge market. So I, I, I actually don't mind the advisors doing that because it's creating liquidity. Again, as I mentioned, it's creating a big market for me. And then, uh, of course, I'm not going to, there's zero commission and I get that 3% goes to my client. Um, it's not off the top. So they're they're going to get the full benefit of it. So that eventually gets shut down. I'm okay with it for now, again, because it creates a very liquid market uh, for me. But it's it's a really good tool uh, that I think more people should should have a look at. So it's $40 billion market now. Do you know what it was a year ago or two years ago? How, like, how much has it grown? No, so it's forty billion of new issues. Oh. It's a hundred billion dollar market. So the stuff gets called away, and there's new issues coming out. So it it has a big turnover, and uh, and so there's like twenty billion, thirty billion, forty billion. It might be fifty billion dollars this year in new issue business, right? And it's a hundred billion dollar market in total. Maybe going to one hundred fifty billion in Canada. Now, Canada, all of the ETFs combined are three hundred fifty billion. I mean, it, I'm talking small numbers. So if you think about this. 
Um, NVIDIA added in, in February 2nd, 2024, $200 billion US in one day, worth more than the entire, all of the ETFs in Canada um, in one day. Um, so I know this is for our, our, your viewers, this is, this is small potatoes, but to us Canadians, it's pretty big. <laughs> BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit is coming to London from March 18th to the 20th. VIP passes are selling fast. Three days of exclusive access to the best networking, parties, and biggest names in crypto. With a VIP pass, you're not just attending the summit, you're experiencing it on a whole nother level. You get access to the VIP and speaker dinner on the first night, access to a special suite, reserved VIP seating for main stage sessions, best seats in the house, and skip the line access to the official DAS after party on the second night. Click the link in the description and upgrade to the VIP experience for just £1,999. Tickets are limited, first come, first served. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. Wow. Uh, so moving on to the, the oil and gas uh, business, I didn't know, you know, you're from, from Canada. I know you, you talked about oil and gas before. I would have thought your exposure was larger than 8%. So that seems pretty small. Why is it, has it been so small? Why is it so small? And when you say oil and gas, I mean, are we talking to ExxonMobil? Are we talking Canadian companies? How are you uh, allocating based on jurisdiction, geographic region, as well as uh, market cap size? Okay, so we're bigger than the S&P. Was it three or four percent? Smaller than the TSX, which is twelve percent. It's a nice, happy medium. I don't want to own energy long term. Owning commodities is not a good long term investment. Um, uh, commodity stocks because you're a price taker, and there's a lot of variability in those in those in, in those commodity prices. There's times we've been almost zero weight. Now we're um, we've locked in some profits on really good, uh, despite oil prices being quite volatile. Companies like Suncor and CNQ in Canada have done very well. And we're leaning more towards Canadian companies. Um, the reason being is um, they have a lot more capital discipline than U.S. companies. Um, U.S. companies like to drill and uh, they're addicted to drilling, almost like brokers are to selling those structured notes. <laughs> and, and so they, they want to just bring on more volume. Um, in Canada, there's a lot more discipline around uh, returning that cash flow back to investors in the form of dividends and buybacks. And I like that. I want that cash. Who knows? Oil is going to be at $75. It may not be there in a year, but still give me that cash flow. And right now, that free cash flow yield on these companies, assuming oil stays flat at $75, is 15%. So um, I'm getting that backward away. I don't want them to increase production. I want them to give it back to me. And they're doing that in Canada. Uh, they're doing a lot of, and their balance sheets are in really good shape. And finally, they get paid in U.S. dollars. I mentioned how I like U.S. dollars and their cost structures in Canadian dollars. And so they're, so even though oil prices are at 75 U.S., in Canadian dollar terms are higher than they were in the mid-2000s when, uh, when the dollar was at par, right? And so we're getting a tremendous benefit from that. And 8% is a pretty big weighting, and, uh, and, and it could really add a lot of, like, Keep in mind, I'm trying to get six to eight on, for a conservative type of investor, and eight percent weighting to one segment of the market is is to me quite high. It may not seem to to people in the U.S. where thirty percent is U.S. tech. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I like being. I mean, dividend companies, IBM, Verizon uh, in the U.S., Suncor, BCTD, TC Energy. You know, those those guys are paying you know five and a half percent dividends. And uh, and the Canadian companies are paying six to eight percent dividends and free cash flow yields at fifteen percent. Um, that does the job for me. I don't need to uh, 
get all excited. So I, I do tweet a lot about energy because it's fun. I do tweet a lot about tech because it's fun. Um, and, and I'm not as emotional because I'm not, um, I rent, I rent the space, I rent these spaces. I, I don't own them because they don't, if I do own them, uh, they'll own me and I'll get really react. I'll get too emotional about these sorts of things. That makes sense. So you like energy, but you're, you're not all in on energy. Maybe you're not as excited about the, you know, well-valued high valuation tech companies. Where are you seeing opportunity in the market right now? Other than what we talked about. If you want to zoom in, the, the, there's a real sexy trade in the Canadian mid caps. They've been completely abandoned by, uh, by investors, institutional investors completely. There's only one or two in Canada. Um, and they're, they're one, one's well, they're both perma, very table pounding energy bulls. But in the in the in these mid cap space has been abandoned. Um, companies that we own like Baytex, Tamarack, Bally, um, you know Crescent Point, um, Tourmaline Oil, um, which would be almost higher. I mean, these companies are able to buy back all their if if energy prices stay where they're at, just stay where they're at. They don't need to go any higher. Um, I know those concerns about China. Uh, India is really doing fantastic. An emerging growth side, even if energy man grows at 3% globally, prices stay flat, they could buy back all their stock and debt in four years. I mean, that's just, it's just, it's, I've never seen that before. So I want to own a little bit of that. And I own a lot of it personally, not a lot, but I have over 8%, well over 8% in some of these smaller ones for a little bit of a torqued upside trade. I could get it wrong. Um, but the risk reward to me is 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 quite exciting. So that that's one little area for a little bit of sex appeal and torque tier portfolios that are good. Uh, I mean, we mentioned the structured notes already. Uh, Canadian dividends and U.S. dividend uh, players, the U.S. economy. I mean, that whole segment of the market is kind of being nobody wants to own that, and uh, you know it's the bread and butter. It's just going to keep chugging along and and paying you a nice dividend rate. And the economy is not falling apart. I'm not one of those few that are. Or thinking the world's going to end and we're going to a deep recession because of the government debt and and they're spending too much and the debt's going to blow up and and the currency is going to be worth nothing and I'm not uh, that that's got you nowhere and uh, and so you know owning you know an IBM or Verizon in the U.S. is probably not a bad trade uh, owning you know RBC in Canada uh, the bank is outstanding you know TC Energy some of the pipeline companies Enbridge. Uh, their concerns about some of their debt interest rates going to come down faster in Canada than the U.S., so their debt their debt costs are going to come down, in my opinion, and uh, and so there'll be some upside. And utility companies, utility companies look also really interesting as interest rates come down. So if you're a believer in in uh, in, in uh, deflationary pressures and 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 interest rates coming down, you know why not own some of that duration exposure through some of the utility companies. So you like utility companies, dividend payers, companies that maybe could be characterized as as value in, in the U.S. as well as Canada. Interesting, Martin, you said that you think interest rates could decline faster in Canada than the U.S. I, I want to know why, but just uh, starting on the topic of interest rates, I want to bring Joseph back to the conversation. Joseph, what did you think of Fed Chair Jay Powell's 60-minute uh, interview? It was not 60 minutes. It was only 13 minutes. You know, I was left a little disappointed, but there was some major forward guidance in there. I think he said something to the effect of, you know, unlikely rate hikes soon, more likely to the summer, which are, the market is kind of interpreting as May and or June, because, you know, that would be uh, uh, f- uh, five or six hikes. So, yeah, I mean, how is your 
outlook on the rate hikes changed or more more accurately how have you perceived the fact that the market is now perceiving that you know there's only going to be five cuts instead of six instead of seven i i was also looking on cnn's website for, for the rest of the uh, 47 minutes to uh, i cannot find it <laughs> but yeah I, I think jay powell's commentary was very much what he repeated uh, what he already said at his press conference just a few days earlier i my sense is that what really stood out to me was that jay powell uh, made very direct commentary on the fiscal situation. Now, he's done this before, um, but this is the second time that I remember him saying it. And the CNN audience is a much broader audience. So I think that's him doing his duty and just telling uh, the public that the fiscal situation is not sustainable. Um, on the monetary policy front, like he mentioned, he did strongly suggest that rates hikes are, are going to be rate cuts are probably going to be sometime towards the middle of the year so maybe may or, or june i think the market is pricing in about a 50 percent in may this seems to have shifted the market's calculus a little bit i think the market is pricing in about five cuts this year so what what it's really done is just kind of push uh, push into the future and a very aggressive um, rate cut path and for me i now, even though the Fed is only saying that they're probably going to cut three times this year, I think the market is probably more right this time than before. And I know, Jack, over the past few years, we've been talking about how the market is so wrong. But the Fed has also been very transparent in how it sees the world. It likes to see the world through real interest rates. You've had John Williams of New York Fed come and talk about this. You've had Governor Waller talk about this. Uh, and in the September meeting, uh, Chair Powell also mentioned this view. So basically, as inflation expectations have come down so much, unless they cut nominal rates, they're going to be risk over tightening. And because inflation expectations have gone down so much, you know, real rates being, being nominal minus expected inflation, they, they, even if they cut five to six times, they're going to still have pretty high uh, real interest rates. And I, I'm pretty sure they don't want to risk their uh, hard fault soft landing and over tighten so uh, i think the market is i think it's reasonable for, for them to expect let's say a deeper rate let's say five six hikes maybe starting in the middle of the year maybe jay powell delays it but i think that's reasonable according to the framework that the fed has telegraphed so the five to six mar uh, cuts that are priced into the market by the end of the year you think the market okay. could be about five is priced in uh, i yeah, about five is priced into the market. But I think that's not unreasonable. Mm. And you can always have some labor slowness. We, we've seen, uh, okay, the labor market report was very good uh, in January. But I think at the end of the day, as we see labor force participation not increasing anymore, uh, we're going to run out of people. And so I think that would suggest that we'd have lower uh, increases in monthly employment. And I think that's going to change the calculus a bit as well. Um, we didn't see it in January, but, but I think it's coming. And is 25 basis point cut, 25 basis point cut, 25 basis point cut, is that your base case rather than 25 basis point cut, pause, 25 basis point cut, pause? All I'm saying is that what the market is saying right now, uh, let's say about five cuts this year, it, it's not unreasonable mm -hmm. according to the framework that the Fed has given. Um, how that exactly plays out, I mean, it's really going to be data dependent and the data has been volatile, right? So in January, we got a very big upside surprise in in payrolls and we do have many economic indicators that seem to be suggesting some degree of uh, acceleration in the economy. So there's a lot of uncertainty just based on all that uncertainty. I don't think what the market is pricing in is unreasonable. 
What actually happens, I guess we'll just have to see. I really do think that the Fed will be data dependent. Got it. Thanks. Mark, going back to to your comment, uh, what made you say that you think the Bank of Canada could cut interest rates faster or uh, more uh, vigorously than the Federal Reserve? The economy is is not as strong. And, and you can see that in some of the labor numbers. Um, and with with the exception of Alberta and energy in itself, which is doing well. And, and so consumers are more levered. And they have to balance that against the asset inflation on the housing. But um, I think when it push comes to shove, they're going to have to provide more so of, from a stimulant standpoint than uh, being less restrictive as what uh, Joseph was mentioning in the U.S. And, uh, and and so they have to weigh that against the inflationary pressures from uh, the immigration standpoint. And so I, I do see them cutting um, uh, at least equal to the Fed or, or if not more. It's actually nice to hear. I mean, uh, that, that the, there's potential, Joseph was mentioning, for those five cuts being quite likely. It's exactly what... what Bank of Canada, I wrote a piece on, on, you want to know Canadian monetary policy? Follow the Fed because we're not, you know, it's, it, I mean, it, what a great job. I mean, you just have to, you can make up all kinds of economic numbers and make yourself sound really smart, but you're really not going to diverge much from the Fed. And, uh, and, and I think um, if the Fed does act in that manner, that's, that's really good news for the Bank of Canada because we want to have some currency stability as well, too. And, uh, and so I, I, I think you'll probably see if there's five cuts in the U.S., you'll see seven in Canada. I mean, if, if, if that does play, play out. Very interesting. Yeah, Canada didn't hike as much. Uh, the rate overnight rate back in Canada is 5%, whereas for the, the Fed, Fed funds rate, it's 5 and 3 eighths. The two-year Canadian rate is 4.2%, slightly below the 4.55% on the, the U.S. Uh, uh, two-year Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on. Uh, um, people can find Joseph's work uh, at fedguy.com. His Twitter handle, of course, is uh, at fedguy12. And Martin, people can find you on uh, M uh, Peltier CIO uh, on Twitter. And uh, what, what's your website? Where can people find out more about, about your firm? www.trivestwealth.com. And that'll flow through to Wellington Altus. That's uh, another good way to, to follow there. And you can also sign up for our uh, we provide free monthly research on all these sorts of things that we're talking about. So if that's of interest to you, uh, uh, happy to add you to the list. Very nice. Thanks again, guys. And thanks everyone for watching. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. A reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly, at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.